This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Residents in and around East Palestine continue to have concerns about potential health hazards after a Norfolk Southern train derailment earlier this month. And closer to home, Greater Cincinnati officials have been working to reassure residents in the area that our drinking water is safe and has not been contaminated with dangerous levels of the hazardous chemicals the derailed train was carrying. Joining me now to talk about that and other important news of the past week are Cincinnati Inquirer City Hall reporter Sharon Coolidge. Thanks for being here, Sherry. It is so good to be here in person. I know. It makes <laughs> such a big difference. And Dayton Daily News staff reporter London Bishop. Thank you so much for being here, London. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be on. Sherry, I want to start with you. You reported on the fact that top Cincinnati Water Department employees spoke with Cincinnati City Council members about how Greater Cincinnati Water Works handled concerns about the water supply created by the train derailment. Explain what they did and what they told council. You know, it was really interesting. All weekend, so this, from what everything that was happening up north, a chemical plume was headed our way with various chemicals from even different chemicals than what had, you know, come from the train derailment. So this chemical plume was headed to us. They were tracking it. It was like the, you know, the Santa tracker at Christmas time. <laughs> like they could follow it, like the currents and everything. And to make sure everybody was safe, what were they going to do? A lot of press releases. But then... It came on Sunday morning. It was here for about a day. Uh, they shut off the water intakes. We were getting all of this information, you know, a couple updates, a, you know, a day on everything. And so uh, Verna Arnett, the interim water director, came into city council to really, you know, kind of break down what they did and let council members ask and to provide information for the public of how everything went. And honestly, I learned a a lot <laughs> sitting in that room. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Your story talked about how they have a stored water supply that they can use when something like this comes up. Tell us a little bit more about what they said about, you know, having this stored water. So all along, I had been wondering, like, how much stored. They said we're going to shut off the intake so the plume doesn't come into the water, plus the water is going to be treated and everything. And I was like, well, how much stored water do we have? Yeah. Uh, but they don't really want to, like, give out too much information about the electrical grid or the water supply. It really is, like, some security issues around it. So I didn't press too much. But then, bam, they said it. We have two to three days of stored water, which at first it doesn't seem like a lot, but you can only keep it two to three days and have it still be good to put into the system and everything. And so they do have that. And then it replenishes as soon as they said they used about 18 hours mm -hmm. of water. So plenty of time. We were nowhere. I think the exact quote from her was we were nowhere near having a problem. Mm. And they are confident that the water's okay now. Yes. And all along, they really had been. They've been testing it. Uh, something I learned that didn't come out at that hearing as like I was asking questions about things. You know, they actually have, this is shocking to me, sniffers at the water department where they like were sniffing the water like 10 times a day to even use like that level of human detection. So plus, human sniffers, people's yes, noses. Yes. <laughs> okay. plus, plus what they do with all of like the actual testing equipment and everything. And so they were really on top of it. I did hear their super long hours. You know, these were not like regular nine to five days for everyone at the water department, but they were really on it. And as a result, we didn't have any problems. Ah. Great. Well, London, I want to talk to you about some of your reporting on this, too. You talked with experts about vinyl chloride, which is one of the hazardous chemicals that was released as a result of the derailment. First, can you tell us about what this chemical is and, and what it's used to make? Yes. So vinyl chloride is used in the production of polyvinyl chloride, which is P 
you know, PVC pipes. That plastic that's used to make PVC pipes uh, comes from, in part, vinyl chloride. Um, so when it breaks down, when it's burned, they, they burned it off, um, it turns into hydrochloric acid um, <clears throat> and another chemical uh, that was used actually as uh, a chemical uh, weapon in World War II. It's called phosgene. Um, so both of those are highly toxic. Really the one we're worried about though is phosgene because like I said, it was used in wartime. Yeah, that does not sound good. So can you explain what authorities did to to get rid of these chemicals and and you know what the what the risks were here? So first they they the Norfolk Southern and the state took a look at the situation and the solution they came up with at the time was to let all the vinyl chloride out of the tankers and well set it on fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at the time that was determined to be the best solution because there was a risk of the of the tankers that had fallen and spilled uh, basically turning into a bomb. Like mm. if it actually exploded on the inside of the tanker, all of that metal shrapnel would have gone every which way and could have caused a lot more damage. Um, that being said, the risk, even with burning it off, there's still, you know, something to be worried about there. Vinyl chloride can cause irritation and burns to your skin and your eyes and repeated exposure can eventually cause damage to your skin, your bones, and your blood vessels. Um, and long-term exposure, there has been there was a study in the 1970s um, that showed that uh, workers who had been exposed to vinyl chloride, um, actually their, their wives were getting miscarriages hmm. because of their uh, damage to the men's reproductive systems. Oh, my gosh. So what has testing of the air and water uh, shown around East Palestine when it comes to to trying to look to see whether these chemicals are are hanging around? So so testing that's that's really been the big word that has been thrown around by the EPA and the Ohio Department of Health. The testing that the state has done has shown that the air in East Palestine is uh, has no traces of the chemicals. The water has no traces of the chemicals. Um the experts I talked to, uh, two toxicology professors at Wright State University, um, they, uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to butcher this uh, pronunciation, uh, but they told me that scientists use uh, this technology called gas chromatograph mass spectrometry. spectrometry that sounded uh, pretty good, me. London. I'm gonna give you a, a slow, <laughs> slow clap Thank for that. You. That was really good, but please go Thank ahead. Thank you. Um, Uh, And what that testing does is it references a library of hundreds of thousands of chemical compounds with great specificity. And if the EPA is using this technology, um, it is highly unlikely that they're missing something. Um, It's highly unlikely that by doing this testing, there's something else that they're not seeing. Hmm. And are they checking on the impact of the soil, on the soil that these chemicals may be having also? Um, I can't speak to that uh, directly as that was not um, solely the proprietary uh, part of my research, but I believe so. Okay, gotcha. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw a curveball at you. So no, what, you're all good. What has the public um, backlash been? It sounds like residents are still still pretty concerned. I mean, they have, to be fair, they have a right to be concerned because the, the important thing to remember here is there is 
potentially no safe level of exposure uh, to a carcinogen. And violent chloride is a carcinogen. It has the potential to cause several types of cancer, actually. Mm. So people have a right to be concerned. People have a right to uh, hold their government and to hold Norfolk Southern accountable uh, for this crash. But it sounds like from the experts you talked with, as long as the the EPA and these these other officials are doing the kind of testing that you described, which I will not try to pronounce, that, that <laughs> the experts are pretty confident that they really have a good gauge of, of what's what's left in the air and water, right? Yes, that's that is uh, what you know the the testing evidence is telling us that we're probably okay, and especially you know down here in Cincinnati um, and other places that get their um, their water from the Ohio River, um, and even up here in Dayton, our drinking water is is pretty much safe. There, it is highly unlikely that our uh, our local water systems um, and the people who are local experts. Um, would let something like that slide. Okay. Well, thank you, London. I want to come back to you, Sherry. Um, There's been a lot of talk here locally about the city's proposed sale of Cincinnati Southern Railway to Norfolk Southern, especially in the wake of this derailment. You talked to the mayor about that sale. Um, What did he have to say? Are they having any second thoughts? No, (laughs) they're not. Uh, You know, it really... It was already on the list of things to do. Uh, This all broke very quickly in November. No one had really, it's not city council's final decision to make this. It's an independent board who made the decision. But, you know, there still are elected officials. I'm sorry. Their words carry a lot of weight. And so we just had not heard anything. And so it was really time to ask them, do they think it was a good financial decision? Do they think it was a good decision environmentally in the wake of everything and really tried to pin everybody down? The answer is basically yes. They were really like, you know, the federal government, you know, oversees railroads. But I felt like there was a lot more nuances that could be in the answers of those questions. It was a little bit frustrating. Uh, But they they basically support this. Mm. It sounds like uh, Norfolk Southern, some North Norfolk Southern executives appeared before council and and talked a little bit. Can you can you help us understand what kind of conversation happened between railroad executives and council members? You know, every once in a while, when I'm you know watching council meetings. <laughs> I wish I was asking the questions. (laughs) That really happened here. They had an hour and a half presentation. Uh, They really did need a lot more information about this. They were told, you know, pretty quickly that this board decided to do this. Uh, They all stood up there, said it was a good idea, believed the mayor. The mayor knew a lot of things about this going way back, and he was for it. So everyone's like kind of were for it. They had an hour and a half presentation from the railway board, really, and the law department explaining the deal and under like the nuances, a lot of what we've already reported. So that took a while to get through. And then Norfolk Southern was also invited. And honestly, the person who came from there, his name is escaping me, but he was like the assistant vice president of government relations. He's like, well, I already planned to be here, but if I wasn't here, I'd be there in East Palestine. So he did say that. But, you know, he was only up there for 12 minutes. It was very Mm. frustrating to see. I mean, they... 
Norfolk Southern at that point hadn't even gone to East Palestine. So our elected officials had somebody that they could ask questions to and deliver answers to the public. Uh, and they just, they asked Mark, Liz Keating and Mark Jeffries were really the ones to really, you know, they were asking some tough questions. And, you know, for whatever region, reason, uh, Reggie Harris, he's running the committee meeting and he was like, well, we'll have a lot more time to talk about this later. And I was like, no, now, but you know, uh, so we didn't really get any, a lot, any answers. I didn't think mm. uh, to questions that we needed. Yeah. Well, in the city, city council, the, the mayor and city council members have said over and over again that the city has this long-term lease with Norfolk Southern, right? So the Norfolk Southern is going to be operating this railway for for many years, even if they the sale doesn't go through. Isn't that right? Is that it? Sounds like were, were you hearing that over and over again from yes, they members? do. They hundred percent. This lease is written for Norfolk Southern. They get the lease. Like if if it's not going to be a sale, and really like they just get the lease. The sales kind of a new wrinkle in things. Mm-hmm. This is like a long time. The city built the railroad. It wasn't leased immediately, but I think pretty quickly, I mean, I'm just going back in time here. They think the city <laughs> was like, oh, we can't run a railroad. Yeah. So they lease it and it's like 900 different companies, but they're all basically Norfolk Southern throughout, you know, this more than 130 years of ownership. And so it's this lease. They do have the right to keep leasing it for, you know, 25 years. But I think a main question is, well, the federal government regulates what's on those trains and how trains operate. At the very least, there is some question points. They go on like a yearly uh, tour to see if Norfolk Southern is keeping things up and to see what they're doing. And apparently there's reports now. I don't know how true that is. I just heard that this morning uh, of, you know, we're keeping everything great mm. like this this back and forth of questions about what's happening. And so with the sale uh, that's going to go away. Mm. And what kinds of questions does the mayor say the city has for the National Transportation Safety Board and for Norfolk Southern? It sounds like he's saying, well, he still supports the sale, but there are some questions that should be answered about public safety, right? So they're planning to ask, and I do need to circle back around and get those letters to ask, you know, what's on these trains? What are you doing? And really, you know, I... I support this. Like we do, we do need some answers. Norfolk Southern does not have to answer, uh, but of course, I have been going around saying just because you don't have to doesn't mean you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like a good time to be more transparent rather than less. Uh, but they are at least asking questions over at City Hall, so that's something. And you know, voters, this is ultimately going to voters in November. There is a lot of time to ask questions. Go ahead, change the state law. That's coming, right? City Council, Rail Board has to give one more sign off on it. They're definitely doing that. They met this week. I was there. No hesitation from the Rail Board. City Council has to rubber stamp it as long as the ballot language meets all of the guidelines and the Rail Board did what they were supposed to do. It's kind of like just a pass through mm-hmm. to like a check and balance kind of thing. They do it and then it is going to go to voters. So the voters do have the ultimate say. There's a lot of time to get the answers between now and then. Hmm. Well, I've been talking with Dayton Daily News staff reporter London Bishop. Thank you so much for your time today, London. And Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And Sherry, I'm going to ask you to stick around because I have another story to ask you about. It's been a week. Yes. Let's talk about the charges that were filed against Cincinnati Bengal Joe Mixon. Uh, He had a charge of aggravated menacing filed against him that was dropped earlier this week. First of all, can you help us understand what Joe Mixon was accused of? We're actually going back two weeks to January. Actually, we didn't hear about it, you know, 
at least two weeks ago we heard about it, actually happened on January 22nd. The allegations are that Joe Mixon is driving to the Bengals stadium to meet the team before they're going to leave the day before the Buffalo Bills game. Uh, they all The team travels together, and there was some sort of road rage altercation at 2nd and Walnut Streets in the banks right by the stadium uh, in which that Joe Mixon was accused of pointing a gun at a woman and making a threat. This is a misdemeanor charge of aggravated menacing. Uh, the woman, this happens. The woman alleges this happened. She goes right to the bank substation and she makes a report, at the, you know, immediately. This isn't like a couple days later or whatever's happening. You know, I've seen some of these reports. She didn't seem to know, at least the early narrative suggests that her answers were, I didn't know who was driving the car. This just happened to me. They run the plate. It comes back to mix in. We I don't know, like, what his, is his plate like? Mixon? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. So two, they do some investigations. Two weeks goes by and the officer in charge of doing the investigation files the charge uh, and puts a warrant out for his arrest. That's kind of how it breaks. I would love a national reporter kind of broke that story. I would love to know how that came to be because it's like, how do you know that a warrant is filed mm-hmm. in Hamilton County except for going over to the warrant desk? But anyway, uh, this breaks that same night. His agent, who's also a lawyer, the agents often speak for these players, is like, this the city's going to drop these charges. This isn't true. This is not true. Right. Uh, And sure enough, that does happen the next day. And the chief says, uh, we are going to we did drop the charges. We're going to go back. We're going to do some due diligence. We're going to do a new investigation, look at some things and then let y'all know we are getting I have to tell you, TikTok. I do think we're getting to that tipping point of where we're going to find out pretty quick here. Ah, so you, I believe in the news release that the Cincinnati Police Department sent out, it said the investigating officer didn't follow. Was it high profile individual protocol or something like that? High. They called him a high profile. He didn't do everything he needed to do for a high profile suspect. That's quotes. We're going to put quotes around that. Yeah. Uh, and it really needed a cursory review that it did not get. I'd never heard that. I was like, to take it special treatment? And I was not alone. I was super sick. I'm like laying on the couch. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, what? And then, but social media really took off. So it was mm. like that question needed to be answered. And I got a lot of different, the police department, 100%, you know, the chief is like, no, he did not get special treatment. I mean, her thing is basically, you know, when she saw it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't mm. enough. So that's not special treatment. That's what you should, if you, if that information comes to you and you know it, then you have to let it, you have to say no. It's not fair mm-hmm. if you, once you know that information. But, you know, David Singleton, the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, I'm sure he's been a guest on here. You know, we're l- lucky to have him local, but he's a national expert on these things. He is like, uh, yeah, he did get special treatment only in the sense that, you know, a lot of times charges get dropped. This is a thing. It happens, but it, the pro- that doesn't happen for a few weeks. You just have your average person. They, you know, they get arrested, right? They actually, they get processed into the jail. This thing all costs money. There's bail. Then they have to get an attorney. They have to go before a judge. It's very, you know, problematic only for like three or four weeks in to be like, oh, we don't have enough evidence. Sorry about that. We'll drop the charges. Mm-hmm. And the, like, I'm sure there's a lot of relief. But his point is there is special treatment. When originally, it is the irony is originally I was like, well, is he getting special treatment because he's, a bangle and they're just going to let it go and not really do anything. Well, in this case, they're actually doing a lot of things uh, that they need to do. And that is the special treatment. Oh. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, because I was I mean, I, I guess I'm confused because the chief seemed to say to you, 
you know, that we treat, we investigate all cases the same way. That's, you know, we're fair to everybody. But if all the cases are investigated in the same way, why would there be a protocol (laughs) for high profile suspects? I do have to say, it's my understanding this officer is in a little bit of trouble for not doing what he's supposed to do. Uh, Uh, So we'll see what happens with that. But uh, you know what? the, The outcome of that, though, is whether it was special treatment or not, once you do know the information, I would expect this of anybody. We are dealing, we're not just dealing with Joe Mixon. We are dealing with a woman who lives in our community. You know, she feels like she was threatened. She she didn't back off. Like, I don't know if she expected, like, I've no one has talked to her that I know of. I definitely have not talked to her. I don't know if she expected this to be on SportsCenter, ESPN, NFL Network. Like, this was a huge story. So when they said they wanted to drop the charges the night of when it's all breaking, you know, she didn't say the next day, never mind, never mind. Mm -hmm. She actually told the prosecutors who called her and were like telling her everything that's going on. I want to go forward with this. Mm. So this this is something that she does. You know, this is there's a victim here, too, that deserves this extra look at things. Mm. And so what's happening with the case now? Are they doing a deeper investigation? Uh, Well, they definitely have been. uh, The chief did tell me, you know, she's like, we'll let you know. But I was like, (laughs) oh, either way, we let us know either way. Because, you know, in any case, when they investigate, they investigate tons of things that we never know about. Like if someone's not charged, it isn't anyone's business that they don't have enough evidence. For the most part, you never hear that. Even in like a grand jury, somebody doesn't get charged. You don't know. And that's a fairness issue. But she's like, in this case, the fairness issue is we're going to tell the public either way. Mm. Well, I've been talking with Cincinnati Inquirer City Hall reporter Sharon Coolidge. Thank you so much for your time today, Sherry. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Up next, we'll discuss how Ohio lawmakers plan to hold hearings on the East Palestine train derailment and other news from Columbus. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Ohio lawmakers plan to hold hearings on the East Palestine train derailment. Could that lead to changes in state law? Joining me now to discuss that question and to talk about many other news stories that she reported from the State House is USA Today Network Ohio Bureau reporter Anna Staver. Welcome back, Anna. Oh, thanks for having me. We're glad you're here. So as I mentioned, you reported that Ohio state lawmakers plan to start hearings uh, next week about what happened in East Palestine. What's the goal with those? Yeah, and actually, uh, just since we got on the air, um, the news of the committee has come out. It will be Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. It's actually a special select committee. Um, And the goal is to figure out what, if anything, Ohio might need to change about state law uh, to prevent something like this from happening again. They are sort of restricted because interstate commerce is covered by federal law. So like Ohio can't mandate that certain people are on certain kinds of trains because when it crosses into Indiana, like that might not, or Kentucky or wherever, you know, that might not be a requirement. Mm. So we are kind of limited in what we can do, but they want to see what they can do both in terms of legal change and financially what might be some of the needs of the people of East Palestine. And and do you have you heard anything more about what some of what the state could do in terms of le- legislative changes as you mentioned it sounds like it's pretty limited because of the fact that trains go through all different states. Yeah, one of the things that Governor Mike DeWine has said he'd like to look at is what kind of notification Ohio can get if uh, hazardous chemicals are coming through an area. 
Um, so that might be something about like mandating certain like notices ahead of time. Um, there's been some questions about how we, what our emergency response laws look like and how we could streamline those better to get help to places like this faster. So it's been some of those questions. Okay. And I guess we will know more about this after Wednesday afternoon when, when this meeting happens next week. Um, I want to yeah. move I want to move on to another story you reported this week, and that is that House Republicans have started uh, debating a bill that seeks to invalidate some types of federal gun laws. Can you explain what this bill is all about? Yeah, so this is a, a House bill being run by a guy named Representative Wojcik, and what it basically says is that um, certain types of laws would infringe upon the Second Amendment, and even if they're passed by the federal government, Ohio couldn't be Ohio law enforcement basically couldn't be compelled to enforce them. So it would say like we deem these kinds of restrictions to be unconstitutional, and even if the federal government passes them we won't enforce them. Now, I will say this is something that became law in Missouri. And it is, there is a federal lawsuit, the US Attorney General has said, no, you can't just not follow federal law. So it is being litigated there. But it is this idea of saying, you know, if that we have a certain interpretation of the Second Amendment, and we believe that should trump federal law, basically. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's all related to enforcement, it sounds like. Now, you know, you mentioned Missouri has a similar law in place. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening there? Yeah, so there's been, I guess, a lot of confusion. Um, there's been about 60 police chiefs from around the state that signed on to an amicus brief, which just means like a friend of the court brief. And one of the things they said is there's like certain federal task forces, certain federal like crime fighting that they participate in and co coordinate with the federal government in. And they have been unclear as to whether they can keep doing that based on the way this law is written. So they say there's a lot of confusion in, in like going forward in those partnerships. And how does the bill's sponsor square this legislation with the supremacy clause? Well, he says it's not a violation, that he is not challenging the uh, supremacy of the federal government, he is making a claim towards the Second Amendment, uh, because obviously, like, Congress can't enact unconstitutional law. I think this is ultimately probably going to find its way to the U.S. Supreme Court one day. Mm, okay. I want to talk an about another bill that you reported on this week, and that was one that State Representative Gary Click reintroduced. He reintroduced a new version of the SAFE Act. Can you explain what this bill would do? Yeah, this deals with transgender minors and the kind of care that um, they can receive. So um, what he says is that he would he wants to uh, basically outlaw uh, the use of puberty blockers, hormones and surgical interventions for all transgender uh, residents of Ohio until their 18th birthdays. Mm. He introduced a similar bill last year. Um, tell us what's different about this bill and, and why last year's bill didn't didn't get farther. Well, he says that they just ran out of time last year. That's um, and so we have two whole years now. So we'll see if it gets across the finish line this time. But uh, last year's bill didn't include a couple of the provisions that are in this one. So, for example, there's uh, in this new bill, there's a rule about custody cases. And it says judges can't use a parent's acceptance or non-acceptance of a transgender child in a custody case. It also has an aiding and abetting clause, which 
I'm still, to be honest, I'm still not clear on, I'm waiting for like the LSC, like legal analysis of the bill. But the way Representative Click explained it is, if Ohio bans, say, the use of hormones, and a doctor recommended that a patient go to Michigan or Pennsylvania or somewhere else to get these hormones, that doctor could lose their license for, quote, aiding and abetting a minor. Oh, so um, you've mentioned that he expects the bill to, to, he thinks there's a better chance that it'll pass this time. What did LGBTQ advocates have to say about this? Oh, they're not happy about this legislation. Um, they disagree with the idea that um, watchful waiting, which is the the term that Gary Click uses, uh, is the best course of action for transgender youth. Um, they sort of believe that these decisions should be made between parents, doctors, and families uh, about what is best for each individual child. And so they don't think that the state should put this blanket prohibition in place. They also said, practically speaking, there are children in Ohio that are on these hormones and the bill would give them 180 days to stop taking them or essentially leave the state. Mm. Well, I want to talk about another report that you had this week that deals with what's a, a very divisive issue, and that is abortion rights. Mm -hmm. um, Abortion rights proponents filed language for a constitutional amendment this week. Tell us about the proposed language. Yeah. So after like months of speculation about what this constitutional amendment would include, they have gone with a pretty similar copy to what Michigan passed uh, last year. So it's a, it would create a right to reproductive um, access in the state of Ohio. And that would include things like um, birth control, miscarriage care, fertility treatments, and abortion. So all things dealing with pregnancy and reproduction. And it says that that right that an individual would have could not be infringed up until the point of viability um, unless there was a clear medical uh, safety reason. So like, you know, you can have certain standards of procedure and cleanliness and care and regulations like you do for other doctor's offices, like that kind of stuff would be allowed. But any restriction on abortion up until viability would have to be proven to like improve the safety of the procedure, if that makes sense. Mm. And can you remind us what's the law in Ohio now and what's permitted now? <laughs> oh, that is not an easy question. So <laughs> technically, um, Ohio now allows abortion up until about 20-ish weeks gestation. Um, there is a heartbeat bill that is technically on the books that bans abortions from about six-ish weeks gestation. Um, so that is on hold because there was a lawsuit filed challenging the legality of that state law against Ohio's constitution. So the Ohio Supreme Court could take that up at any time. That law could go back into a place effectively at any time. But right now it's up to about 20 weeks. So who are the groups behind this uh, proposed constitutional amendment and, and what are the next steps with it? So um, it's a bunch of different groups. Uh, there's a physicians group. There's the ACLU. There's like Planned Parenthood. Um, originally, like there was some talk about these groups doing their own separate things, but they they finally all came together to do one thing. And so their next uh, phase is gathering signatures. They're going to need well over 400,000 signatures from 44 of Ohio's counties. Um, so you may see them at like your local Kroger soon standing out there, like asking you to sign the petition. And once they collect all the signatures, they have to turn them in. Those have to be validated. And if they get enough, 
then it will be on the ballot in November. Okay. I want to turn to uh, another story that you reported this week. You had so much. Uh, this may be the last one we have. Busy week. Time to talk. Yes, very, very busy week. So you reported about an Ohio state representative who made comments about a state senator's culture and his beliefs uh, regarding the death penalty. Can you kind of explain that to us? And I'll be clear, we're not asking you to repeat exactly what this state representative said, but just kind of explain what, what was going on there. Yeah, so Senator Narajantani from the Dayton area is Hindu. And as part of his faith, he is vegetarian. And as part of his faith, he is also uh, doesn't believe in abortion or the death penalty. He says he is pro-life from conception to death, right? That's where he comes down. And uh, Representative Scott Wiggum uh, is supports the death penalty. And he was discussing the death penalty along with a bunch of other issues at the University of Akron uh, with some students, and it was being recorded. And so on this tape, you see him discussing the death penalty, and he talks about who who wants to end the death penalty from his GOP caucus, right? What Republicans? And he mentions Antani, and he makes sort of a off color, maybe? I'm not sure the best way to phrase it. He makes a remark about Antani's Hinduism, and that was not phrased correctly, to say the very least. Gotcha. What was the reaction by Senator Antani? So he says that him and Scott Wiggum are friends. They were both in the House together. He gives uh, Representative Wiggum the benefit of the doubt that he was trying to uh, you know, communicate that Antani's um, faith influences his decision on the death penalty. Still, he says, you know, that this is an example of how he believes Republicans can do better when it comes to race and religion and talking about people of other faiths and that he thinks, um, you know, this this is an ongoing problem that, um, you know, it can impact how minority voters feel about the GOP generally. And so he just said, look, I, th- I think this is a moment where, um, you know, we can learn from this and recognize that as a Republican Party, they can do better. Mm. Has there been any other fallout over this beyond, uh, you know, the senator's perspective and what, and what he's had to say? Um, there have been uh, a couple of Democrats who have released statements saying that it was like grossly inappropriate what Wiggum said. Now, I will say I did talk to Wiggum. He said that he did apologize to Antani and that he did not intend to in any way disparage uh, Antani's faith. Mm. So I'm going to ask you about one more story you reported this week, although I think we have about 75 <laughs> that we haven't talked about. Um, you reported that Ohio might give students excused absences, uh, three excused absences for religious holidays. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, schools can't close for every religious holiday that everybody has, right? Like, that just practically does not make sense. But what do you do when a kid has a religious holiday, but they also have an exam? Or if, say, they are absent um, for a Good Friday celebration, but then can't play in a game on Saturday. And so what this bill would do is you would get three excused absences for religious purposes, and it would direct schools to come up with a non-exhaustive list, right? They, sh- they should be open to other faiths that they may not have considered, but like basically like, you know, if a Jewish student wants to stay home for Yom Kippur and fast at home with their family, that like they should be allowed to make up a test or not get dinged for turning in an assignment late. Gotcha. So the problem this is trying to solve is is to allow students in, in public schools to be able to, to celebrate important 
religious dates without being penalized for those. What what are some of the other kind of penalties that lawmakers worry, you know, students are, are maybe suffering? Yeah, so it's obviously being excluded from a sport, um, being dinged on a test or an exam, like just basically um, not being able to make up work uh, those kinds of things. And I will say that uh, a seminal, a similar law passed uh, last year for colleges. So starting in April, if you are a college student, you will get three excused religious absence days per semester. Hmm. Does this have broad support in the legislature? Yes. Um, the last bill passed nearly unanimously last year. And I will say that like Muslim groups, Christian groups, Jewish groups, and like all the religious faith groups seem in large, like to support the idea of making it easier for kids to take time off to celebrate these holidays. Mm. So what's next with this? Um, it will have hearings. It will go through the process. But I, I suspect it's one of those bills that like, you know, it's like, look, everybody's getting along. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a little bit of a change of pace from Columbus, so we'll keep an eye on that. I've been talking with USA Today Network Ohio Bureau reporter Anna Staver. Thanks so much for your time today, Anna. Oh, thank you. Up next, we'll talk about how you'll be able to watch the Cincinnati Reds on TV this season and whether there will be anything worth watching. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. The financial uncertainty facing Bally Sports Ohio has had some Reds fans worried about how they'll be able to be watching the team on TV this season. And after the Reds ended last season with a 62-100 record, others are wondering whether there will be much worth watching at all. Joining me now to talk about baseball in hopes that the weather will warm up again if we do, our WVXU reporter and midday host, Ann Thompson. Welcome back, Ann. Thanks for having me, Lucy. And WVXU media beat writer, John Keysweater. Thanks for being here, John. Fine, thanks. So, Anne, I want to start, I mean, we've talked about the, the sad season that the Reds had last year, whether there will be, I know you reported on, on whether there will be anything worth watching on the field. But first, let's talk about something that it sounds like is worth seeing at the Reds Hall of Fame. Um, can you tell us about this new exhibit that you've checked out? Yes, it's called Women in Baseball, and it's at the Reds Hall of Fame. It opens today and will be there for about a year or so. And according to curator Chris Eckes, it goes way beyond just the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. That is the league that was featured in the movie The League of Their Own. It deals with not only players, but umpires and executives and women who have been involved with the game since the mid-19th century. The mid-19th century. I thought that was fascinating in your in your story. What are some of the most interesting pieces of memorabilia that you that you saw on display in this exhibit? Yeah, sure thing. So there are baseball cards, of course, there are trophies, contracts, and you may know about Cincinnati's own Dorothy Kamichek, Cami. She was from Norwood. And she played um, in the 40s and the 50s professionally and is depicted in a league of their own. And she was recruited or scouted out, according to WVXU's Howard Wilkinson, on <laughs> a sandlot uh, and then signed and then went on to have a great season and arguably was the best female player during that time. So she... There might be a bobble, bobblehead or an action picture, uh, picture um, 
uh, and also uh, a painting or a picture of her. But then also there were some other things I found really interesting. A comedian, Ray Cox, whose piece and cadence has been likened to Who's on first that helped inspire many people believe Abbott and Costello's Who's on first? Oh, that so is there's interesting. There's some information about her. And then finally, Chris Eckes, the curator, his favorite is a doll made for the all American girl player Dora Satterfield. So the doll's on display, it was made by a fan. And there's also a picture of her holding it. So those are just a few of the many things that are on display. Ah, you mentioned in your story that the exhibit also explores some of the obstacles that that girls and women have faced in the game. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Eckes was also explaining that the All-American Girls League never did accept African-American players, and, and that was a shame. However, the exhibit does touch on the stories of probably the best two um, known female professional baseball players in the Negro Leagues. I mean, just as a matter of fact, um, with all races, just women, you know, in baseball, even though they may have been good enough. In fact, um, Howard was explaining that Dorothy Kamenchak, oh, there was a team, a men's team that wanted to sign her, but she thought it was more about just like, you know, it might be a joke or like trying to get people to come like a publicity stunt to see her and she declined. Mm. So just, you know, many uphill battles. Those are just a few. Ah. Well, John, I want to turn to you now. There has been, as I mentioned, a lot of concern about the future of major league baseball games on TV. Tell us why that is. Well, the, uh, the major, there's a company called Bally Sports, uh, which has Bally Sports Ohio, which has the Reds. Uh, Bally Sports has 19 major league franchises that that they do the the games for. Plus, if you're a Bally Sports uh, subscriber here, you know that they have the a lot of NBA with the Cavaliers, and they've got the NHL with the Blue Jackets. And they missed a payment on their debt um, on February 15th and asked for a 30-day grace period. And there's been several reports saying that um, that the the parent company to it, which is called Diamond Sports, uh, could file for bankruptcy. Mm. So I've been asked by a lot of people, you know, will the Reds still be on TV this year? And th- from all I can tell, yes. Yes, they'll be on TV, but there might be changes coming. Uh, Forbes magazine reported recently that the um, that Diamond Valley has enough money to, to cover this year's broadcast. But if they file for bankruptcy, and depending on how the the, the clauses are structured, um, that that could change things. Mm. So the latest is, as far as you know, fans will be able to watch the games yes. on TV. In fact, there's going to be seven games on uh, that Bally Sports Ohio will carry seven Reds games, including um, this Saturday afternoon, starting the first of the seventh, and and also the, the they'll be on WLW or WSAI uh, on radio through the spring. And they'll be on opening day, and opening day will be simulcast by Channel 12 again because they're both owned by Sinclair. Okay. You wrote about the potential of a direct-to-consumer streaming model for, for Major League Baseball games. Can you talk about how that would work? Yes. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> back up a bit. Last last September, Bally Sports launched something called Bally Sports Plus, and they offered uh, streaming of the NBA Cavaliers and the Blue Jackets, but the Reds weren't included mm. when they started. And when I asked around, they said that we don't have a deal with the Reds for streaming. And in fact, Bally 
has 14 contracts, but only four for streaming with Major League Baseball. The other 10 they don't, and they don't have a deal with Major League Baseball. So if if something happens to Bally Sports and, and MLB steps in to take it over, it could it could work like this, that you'd uh, according to what Commissioner Manfred had said, that that we cut a deal with the cable companies to have the the typical cable coverage we have now. The MLB has had MLB.tv, which is a streaming service, but only for out-of-market games, not mm-hmm. for your in-market games. And he said that they would do another tier at a different price, higher price, mm-hmm. so you could stream your your in-market games too. So that's that's and I'm. The, the my thinking, and I think the the way most writers feel who watch this is that is that MLB is going to control its streaming rights, and they don't want all these little regional networks to have their own little streaming deals, uh, and that it, it eventually it all fold in under MLB as this shakes out, as Bally's revenues drop, as people cut the cord on cable and ca- their cable revenues drop so they can't make the payments to the clubs that they had promised. Mm. Yeah, so talk about what is the impact on team revenue that all this could have down the road? I, I've got to give uh, credit to Steve Watkins over at the Business Journal. Good old uh, Steve. Business, <laughs> because if you look on the Internet, you can't find anywhere of what the Reds get in their regional rights. Broadcasting and cable used to do a, a, a list every year. And that's the big difference between um, the baseball clubs because the Dodgers get like almost $240 million for their their uh, cable TV deal. And Steve said uh, in the business career yesterday that the Reds get an estimated 50 to $60 million. So that's like six times less than what the Dodgers would get. And on top of that, the the Reds also took an ownership stake in Bally Sports, and so we're not nobody really knows what that is or how much money is involved in addition to the to the rights fees they'd be paid. Uh, Reds co- haven't answered any questions. They've referred everybody to ML, the MLB office in New York, and uh, Bally Diamond Sports aren't talking either. Mm. Well, Anne, I want to come back to you because we're talking about watching the Reds on TV, but you had another story this week. The headline was, Red Spring Training is Underway. Should Fans Have Any Hope After Last Season? (laughs) So so the question is, will there be anything worth watching? What did you learn in reporting that story? Yes, and I want to point to MLB.com beat reporter Mark Sheldon because that is where I got my information. He knows all things Reds. He is at spring training right now as the team is preparing to play the Cleveland Guardians tomorrow. And he said, look, um, 2024 might be more realistic to contend. He doesn't see the Reds making the playoffs this year. But there are some things that can help the Reds. And he says, above all, they need to get off to a good start. It can't be the 3-22 and start of last season. He is looking to see if three very dynamic starting pitchers will take steps forward. If catcher Tyler Stevenson and second baseman Jonathan India return from their injury plagued seasons and produce. And if Joey Votto can come back from major shoulder surgery. Hmm. And what did the Reds do in the offseason? Did he say there was anything they any moves they made that they could that could help the team this season? Yeah, a few. The Reds signed Will Myers to a one year deal. He is a former San Diego Padre. 
He hit 30 homers during 2017, but he hasn't hit more than 20 in the last couple of years. And San Diego is a park where it's hard to hit home runs there. He also points out that the Reds added two catchers to help out Stevenson. Kurt Caselli used to be with the Reds, and Luke Maley is a native of Covington. So those are just a few moves that the Reds made in the offseason. Okay, and we only have a few seconds left, but have you heard any optimism from Reds manager David Bell? Yeah, well, he <laughs> says, and this is kind of obvious, there is really no shortcuts. It's really about diving into what we love to do, and that's competing every day to just get a little bit better in every area of the game. And to me, that's kind of what a manager's role is to say that every time. Hopefully the Reds can produce. Um, so I, you know, I want to be optimistic. I am a little bit of a fair weather fan, but we'll kind of have to wait and see. Okay, well, I've been talking with WVXU reporter and midday host Ann Thompson and WVXU media beat writer John Keysweater. Thank you both so much for your time today. You've been Thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asia Johnson. Derek Smith is our technical director. I'm Lucy May.